Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. I think it was King Solomon who once said, there's nothing new under the sun. But honestly, in medicine, that's not really true, as we've seen with COVID-19. And um, there are other illnesses that, you know, in the last several decades have been discovered. Now, one of those diseases back in 1977 was Lyme disease. Lyme disease was actually brought to the attention of medical authorities by two mothers in the state of Connecticut who were quite concerned that there were an unusual number of cases of what was diagnosed as juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. These mothers contacted the Connecticut Department of Health, who then in turn contacted a young rheumatologist in training, Dr. Alan Steer, who started doing with his epidemiological background some sleuthing and came to the conclusion there was something there. And along with Dr. Willie Bergdorfi, an NIH researcher at Rocky Mountain Laboratory, came up with the diagnosis that Lyme disease, which was, became a, a new entity, was actually due to a bacterium called Borrelia, which was found inside the guts of ticks. And that was what was responsible for this new disease. The exciting news at the time for this disease was that it was being caused by a bacterium, Borrelia, which is very similar to an old type of infection called syphilis, which many people have heard about. And so it was thought that the treatment would be fairly simple. I mean, treatment with antibiotics should cure the disease, end of story. However, this was far from the end of the story. Over the past several decades, legions of patients claiming to suffer with chronic Lyme disease have swelled to enormous proportions. To make matters worse, there have been sort of two sides of the story. A lot of there are doctors on one side of the fence saying that a lot of these cases are not really chronic Lyme disease. And there are other doctors purporting that, yes, this is absolutely chronic Lyme disease. And in fact, there have been very strong patient advocacy groups fighting tooth and nail with insurance companies to get coverage for long-term treatments with IV antibiotics to treat this condition. And on top of that, what really got me interested in doing this podcast today, and I'm excited in a moment to introduce our guest, was also another book I read called Deep Places that was written by the New York Times columnist Ross Dutat. And in this book, which is quite powerful, he discusses his journey from being a very healthy young adult to developing quite severe physical and mental disabilities from what is believed to be chronic Lyme disease. My guest today, Dr. Brian Fallon, is the director of the Lyme and Tick-Borne Disease Research Center at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. And Columbia is one of the internationally most famous medical centers in the world. I was fortunate to do some training there. They really have just amazing people. He's also the co-author of the book Conquering Lyme Disease, along with Jennifer Slotsky, which is a real comprehensive view of the latest information on Lyme disease. So with all of that, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Brian Fallon to the podcast. 
Thank you, Dean, for that wonderful introduction. The story, you told the story of Lyme disease very well, the, be the beginning days, so. It was interesting. When I was in residency at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital in the uh, mid-1980s, and it was at the height of the AIDS epidemic, so we were being bombarded with that, we used to get assigned to do presentations to the rest of the residents, which was a really great way to begin to learn how to teach and, and understand the subject. So my particular subject was Lyme disease. So I did a real deep dive back then and uh, on Alan Steer's work and found it to be fascinating. It turned out he actually also trained at St. Luke's Roosevelt too. In the, were, you at, uh, in the were, were you at St. Luke's or was I was, it, at, Rose, I was at Roosevelt? Yeah, he was at yeah. St. Luke's, and uh, you know I've done training up at Columbia in infectious disease. So anyway, my first question to you is always uh, my personal interest question that I ask a lot of my guests, and it's about background. And I believe you did your residency training in psychiatry, so I'd like to know how you ended up in this area of infectious disease, especially Lyme disease, considering what your training was. Yeah, it's a good question. Why would a psychiatrist want to have anything to do with <laughs> microbes, right? right. And um, I'll tell you, when I was in medical school and I was taking microbiology, I was thinking, why do I have to study this? Because I know I'm going into psychiatry. Okay. How is this, how is this relevant? What happened was uh, I was a young psychiatry uh, resident just out of residency in 1989. I graduated from the psychiatry residency at Columbia. And I started a research fellowship in biological psychiatry to work with anxiety disorders, primarily obsessive compulsive disorder. And I was working with a team that focused on clinical trials. So what are the best treatments for patients who have these different anxiety disorders? Really wonderful team led by Michael Leibowitz and Donald Klein. And so I really learned from the best people about how to design and conduct clinical trials at the time. One of the associated disorders I was interested in was hypochondriasis. And I was interested in that because I started to see parallels between the OCD patients and the hypochondriacs in that they obsess about something, they can't get it out of their head, and they have these compulsive behaviors to check over and over again. So I developed an expertise in hypochondria and somatoform disorders. So I started to get referred a variety of patients, many of whom were in fact struggling with hypochondriasis, but some, I thought, didn't have hypochondriasis, but had something else that was being missed. And some of those patients, I thought, might have Lyme disease. So that was one reason I got really interested in this. And then the second reason was I had family members, one or two family members, who got diagnosed with Lyme disease and started to have some difficult problems with it. And I learned that you can have Lyme disease, you can get better and then with antibiotics, but then you can relapse. And you can relapse maybe a month later or three months later or four months later. And that was a real problem in, in, with patients because, and doctors, because the doctors didn't know what to do to help these patients. And the patients were, uh, so they would go to the experts and the experts at the academic uh, institutions were saying two to three weeks of antibiotics is curative and anything beyond that is excessive. And, you know, we want to not overuse antibiotics uh, for good reason. And so we discourage and actually uh, strongly discourage people to use additional courses of antibiotics for these patients with what look to be relapsing symptoms or persistent symptoms. Then that, that drove the patients crazy because oh. these were, let's say, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, or 20-year-olds who were perfectly healthy. And then all of, a, all of a sudden, they get diagnosed with Lyme disease, and they get treated, and they get dramatically better, and they're so relieved. And then all of a sudden the symptoms come back two or three months later or a new set of symptoms that are somewhat similar. 
And we go to their doctor and say, I need help. And the doctor says, well, I don't know what to do. And so some doctors who, let's say, are risk, taker, risk takers or are really committed to their patients are willing to try an additional course of antibiotics and the patient gets better. They're very happy. And for the majority of patients, that was enough, the second course. But sometimes people might need a third course or a fourth course. Mm. So it was extremely puzzling to the medical community what to do with these patients because nobody had been doing any studies yet of how to help these right. patients with persistent symptoms. So I got interested. I thought, well, here I am. I'm a clinical researcher. I'm at the start of my career. I'm really interested in OCD. I love OCD, working with OCD patients. I love working with the hypochondriacs. But I also have this strong commitment to these patients with chronic symptoms uh, due to Lyme disease. It was really interesting. And then the third reason I got interested was because Holly Murray, the mother in old Lyme. Yes, right, right. Mm -hmm. Old Lyme, Connecticut. Leave it to the moms. <laughs> she contacted my wife, Jennifer Niels, who is a psychiatrist at Yale, and said, you should study the psychiatric aspects of Lyme disease. And so the two of us talked about it. And so we took a visit, made a visit to Polly Murray's home to talk with her further. And she lived in old Lyme, Connecticut. And she was an artist, and uh, it was really fun to be there with her beautiful art on the walls. But she told us that a number of her neighbors had uh, psychiatric problems. She talked about her own depressive episode associated with Lyme disease in the book that she wrote. And so then she actually arranged for us to interview some of her neighbors, which we did. And at the end, we had no clue whether the problems were due to Lyme disease or not, but that they were, all we knew was that they had had both problems. But it stimulated us enough to start looking at the medical literature, what, what's reported there. And there were two, art, two review articles, large review articles in Europe talking about psychiatric manifestations associated with Lyme borreliosis. And borreliosis, Lyme borreliosis is the term they use there for Lyme disease. Right. So I thought, wow, that is so interesting, especially as you mentioned earlier, the overlaps with syphilis being a, a spirochetal microbe causes syphilis and a spirochetal microbe causes uh, Lyme disease called Borrelia burgdorferi. So I thought we have to research this. Mm. So we start, that's, where, that's when we started our research. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. And it really it makes a lot of sense to me. One of the things also just to point out to the listeners, you know, again, in, in my training, the, even the history of medicine, they'll say, you know, syphilis was the great imitator. And what they mean by that is those kind of infectious diseases present with so many various different symptoms that it could fool any diagnostician. And it's interesting with your background in hypochondriasis, because, you know, again, a lot of patients are having all these different symptoms. And, you know, honestly, Ross Dutout, when you read in his book about all of his different symptoms, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. All the different symptoms. So you would, and a lot of the doctors thought he was a hypochondriac. So Absolutely. And it's understandable right, that they would. Right. Sure. And, uh, you know, it gets my next question to a little bit about epidemiology, because we're going to go through a couple of different, really, areas of this. But we know that Lyme disease is quite pervasive in the Northeast. And in fact, probably at one point, it got kind of labeled as the yuppie disease, especially the New Yorkers who were all vacationing in the Hamptons or Cape Cod or Montauk. But if I was getting a history on somebody, do I have to worry about as much a teen in Queens or Morningside Heights as much as a, a teenager out on Eastern Long Island? I mean, when you're looking at and trying to evaluate these patients, and we're going to get to how difficult it is even, unfortunately, to diagnose them, is location of where somebody lives a pretty important factor? Oh, it is. It is. It's, it's, it's quite helpful because, for example, if someone lives in a heavily Lyme endemic area where there are an abundance of these black-legged ticks, and the black-legged ticks are the ticks that carry the Borrelia burgdorferi Lyme disease organism, then you're much more likely to get infected than if, if you don't live in that area. Okay. On the other hand, if you live in Manhattan or, or the Bronx, 
and you spend time on the Jersey Shore, or you spend time uh, Hudson Valley or, or in eastern Long Island, and you like to hike or you're outdoors a lot, then it's much more likely that you would acquire a tick during one of those exposures. Now, it's not just the Northeast that these ticks have spread right, that's right. Uh, mm-hmm. throughout the United States. So not all states, but certainly they've expanded down the uh, uh, Atlantic coast all the way down to Florida, up to Maine. They've gone west, uh, this uh, Exodes pacificus, which is another form of the black-legged tick in California. So the western coastal states, the Midwest, and, and now the abundance regions in the east coast are affected. So this really is almost, you know, epidemic proportions. This is no right, longer... It's a, global, it's a global disease also. Right, it's in Europe as well. It's more than 80 countries. Mm, okay, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, there are specific areas where, again, like I practice in Manhattan and Long Island, so I have a little bit more of my antennas up about, you know, when I see patients, because that's part of my practice. I see people with chronic fatigue and various different immunological joint issues that it's high on my radar, but we'll get into how difficult it still is. So, you know, the next area I really wanted to get into, and, and this is just, you know, my background also, when I did my training actually at, through Columbia at St. Luke's Roosevelt, it was, the division was allergy, immunology, and infectious disease. Oh, that's and, a great combination. Yeah, it was. It was really a very interesting, you know, again, as a time we did a lot with HIV and AIDS, but I was always fascinated with infectious disease. It would, to me, it was the detective work of medicine. And, and I love also when I was in medical school, like, you know, when you learn microbiology and immunology, you, know, you have to learn all the different types of bacteria, viruses, parasites. And, and as you were saying, you're like wondering, why do I have to learn all of these? Am I ever going to see these in my career? Yeah, but yeah. what I, I, I always like pondered about a lot was like with Lyme disease, you know, as we mentioned earlier, it was discovered to be a bacterium, you know, si- similar to something called treponemin pallidum, which is known to cause syphilis. And it's in that family of what's called spirochetes. And again, for my listeners, again, as medical students, when we learned about these different bacteria, some of them have certain kind of cell walls. And, but this particular kind of bacteria has like what looks like a corkscrew shape. But it's not a virus and it's not a parasite. But also similar to something, you know, tuberculosis, unlike a lot of other bacteria, it can get inside cells. So my question for you, Dr. Fallon, what makes this bacterium, a Borrelia, so difficult to, you know, I'm asking in general terms now, to test for and to treat, you know, in your, in your clinical opinion? Yeah, let's just start with testing. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what happens when the tick bites you? The spirochetes come from, go from the inside of the belly of the tick up to the salivary glands and they get transmitted to the skin. If you test the skin right at that point and do a biopsy and try to culture it, you'll find the spirochetes. Mm. Or at the leading edge of the rash, that that famous rash. Oh, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. Okay. You could find the spirochetes there. Or if you do a blood test and collect lots of blood, you might be able to find the spirochete in the blood within, let's say, the first couple of days of that original rash. But it's extremely, extremely hard to find the spirochete in the blood after that. So because of that, the testing for Lyme disease is limited to antibody tests. And the antibody tests, while helpful, don't tell you whether someone currently has active infection. All they tell you is whether the immune system has recognized the presence of the microbe in the blood. So obviously, it's an incredibly valuable test, and it was a great advancement when a test was developed for Lyme disease, but the tests aren't perfect. I remember when I was first starting out in the 1990s and learning about Lyme disease, I was told by the academics that our tests are 99% sensitive. And I was thinking, well, how 
how could that be? Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't seem to be true with some of the patients I've been seeing. And then they're negative one time and then they're positive months later. And, you know, I didn't really know what was going on with the tests. So that that's disturbing. We actually did a study where we took blood from patients, let's say it was 40 patients or and, 20, and let's say 30 controls, something like that. And we divided the blood from each person into four different samples. And then we sent the serum to four different labs. So the idea was we wanted to find out, do you get the same result if you send blood to one of these specialty labs or one of these academic labs or commercial labs? And what we found was that there was a lot of discordance, mm -hmm. a lot of disagreements among the labs. One lab would say it's positive, another lab would say it's negative. And these are good labs. And so you think, wow, if these are reputable labs, but they're coming up with different stories on the same patient sample, that decreases your confidence. Some of the tests, like the IgG Western blot, performed about the same in all of the labs, but the IgM Western blot, there was variability, and the ELISA, there was some variability as well. The tests have improved over the years, for sure, but there's still great limitations. What we need to bring the best help to the patients is a test that can tell us whether or not infection is still present. Because once it goes from the skin and then it goes through the tissue and into the bloodstream, it leaves the bloodstream very quickly and, and lodges in the joints or in, the, mm -hmm. or in other tissues elsewhere. So it's very hard to detect. You know, that's a great point that you're bringing up. Because again, I always make that parallel with syphilis, you know, and you, we used to look back and think, God, syphilis wasn't hopefully that hard to diagnose. But again, it was a venereal disease. The patients used to come in that they were having discharge in the you know the penile area, and I think that's when the doctors would get quickly get a do a smear and see that little spirally spirochete on the on the specimen, and then but again then there was blood testing as we know for antibodies to the uh, treponema paladin was supposed to confirm to make sure it wasn't a false positive test. Yeah. But I, I, from what I've read also too about with Lyme disease, with Borrelia, is that it gets in what's called this L or cyst form. Is that is that why it's so hard to detect in the blood that could actually change its shape and is able to hide better? Well, not so much in the blood, but but it does, it, does, it does change its shape in different fluids or based on pH. For example, if you look in the spinal fluid, they might appear more in a round form and then in the spiral shape. I mean, if you're lucky enough to find the organism, then you could do a PCR or you could do things to try to identify exactly what it is. But most of the time you can't find the organism. Among patients, let's say, who have been previously gotten, let's say, one course of treatment and they have a relapse. It's just very, very hard to find the organism. So they've been, animal models are the key to a lot of progress in medical science, right? So early on, there were some very good animal models developed, mouse models, uh, for example, mice develop uh, Lyme arthritis, rhesus macaques, the monkey model, also a very good uh, non-human primate model of Lyme disease. But if you do the test where they get infected with Borrelia from a tick and then they get treated, it's very hard with multiple blood draws to find the Borrelia spirochete. However, if you do a special test called a xenodiagnostic test, which is an old test in which you take a tick and you allow the tick that has been cultured in the lab and is known not to be infected at all, and you allow this tick to feed, let's say, on the mouse that has been previously infected with Borrelia and treated, and then you test the belly of the tick to see if there's any evidence of the Borrelia spirochete 
after it has done its feeding on this previously treated mouse, you can in fact find Borrelia there. So that was that was uh, discovered in or reported in 2008 by the group at UC Davis, led by Stephen Bartold, and Amar Hatzig was the first author on that paper. And he was, uh, Dr. Bartold was one of the leading researchers in the world on animal models of Lyme disease. So when he published that paper, it was almost like an earthquake had hit the uh, academic communities because all of a sudden, a very prominent investigator was confirming that yes, uh, the infection can persist. But with our standard routine Western blots and ELISAs and antibody-based tests, you just don't know really what's going on. Well, that's, that's so important what you're saying, and obviously coming from an authority like yourselves, because it puts the patient and the clinician in a very unique situation, I think, that where, again, you need the doctor to have a very high suspicion of this. So I'll give you an example. As you know, are you well aware, you know, like Bell's palsy, where a patient gets those facial droops, can be due to Lyme disease. There's other causes of it, of course. Sure. But again, you know, if a, a, a doctor saw a patient that came with Bell's palsy, and let's say he asked the patient, you know, do you think you got it, you know, bitten by a tick or were you in an area? And, you know, maybe again, the patient doesn't remember or there's no real hard evidence. But then the doctor may say, you know what, maybe we should give you a course of antibiotics, you know, since it's relatively benign, you know, to see if it, it alters the course of this situation. And obviously, you know, Lyme has other presentations, whether it's cardiac, you know, sometimes when patients present with different type of arrhythmias. Sure. And so, again, I, it's very important what you're saying because I think it gives the doctors some more cover, so to speak, to go out on a limb, to work with that patient and say, look, again, from whatever evidence I can gather, I think, or again, the risk benefit of treating you in this particular case warrants that. That's exactly right. And that was the central, that's the core of the controversy that was there in the, uh, in the 1990s. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Which is, what do you do with these patients? And those doctors who are willing to treat oftentimes are able to help their patients, but they were at risk of losing their license right, for doing that right. because it was against what the medical teaching was at the time. So it was a no-win situation. You either right, you either lost your license from the from the uh, the Department of Health, or you had the advocacy groups like Doctor Steer being threatened with their life. You know, it was, right. it was horrible. Yeah, exactly. Right. That was horrible. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I was in touch with him. I mean, I and I understood he. I, we were hoping to get him on at one point, but he was a little reluctant. You know, because oh, Doctor Steer is great. Yes, he he's, he's wonderful. Man. Man, I mean, it's just you know, I mean, he's been through hell. In the I back. mean, he's and he's been through a very diff. Well, he's obviously he is the leading authority yes. on Lyme disease in the world, right. right? And he did get a tremendous amount of grief early on because uh, the patients were having these persistent symptoms, and he was trying to focus on the science and what the yeah. way the science was, but the science wasn't there yet yeah. to tell him, you know, to allow him to to go out on a limb. Let me ask you about if we can though about specific testing a little bit. I mean, there is the ELISA where you check for just for our listeners. It's you know you check what's called antibodies, IgM, IgG, and there's something called Western blot where you're looking at I believe like protein bands for the different possible proteins that might indicate that there's Lyme disease. You know, again, I'm sure at your center, you're checking these things along with, I know, other the other ticks, you know, babesiosis and, and ehrlichiosis. They're all kind of hard names to say. <laughs> but do you find that, for example, you know, if you're concerned and, you know, a lot of patients have heard about Igenix as being the, the best testing lab for this, although I have not found that myself, but that looking at these different bands, that there are certain ones that are specific. Because, you know, again, the biggest controversy, as you know, is that, okay, you have to meet like five out of the 12 bands 
to be CDC diagnosed with Lyme disease. But if somebody had a, a band, let's say for bands 23 and 31, which are supposed to be highly specific, does that sway your thinking, you know, how you're approaching pe- you know, patients at the center? Well, those are really good questions. In 1995, that's when the CDC came out with a list of like 10 bands that are, they called specific bands. Uh, they thought they were highly specific for Borrelia burgdorferi, and some bands were thought to be more specific. So, for example, the 31 kilodalton band was one of the bands upon which a, a vaccine against Lyme disease was being formulated. So, doctors like myself and many others paid more attention to some bands than others. However, over the years, we've learned that there's cross-reactivity at those band locations from some other antibodies that are not Borrelia antibodies. So even though we thought that these were highly specific, it turns out they're not as specific as, as we once thought. So the notion that one band or two bands themselves on an IgG Western blot, if they're there, can be diagnostic themselves has really not been supported by some of the recent uh, okay. findings. Okay. What about also... I mean, the other, the, other, the other point, which I think is, is important to raise, yes. which is that you can have Lyme disease and not test positive on, on these tests. I know. So, I, I, I think it's so important, yeah, that you're... It's really important because yeah. people are being denied the option of treatment, mm. which potentially really help them just because they only have four bands or they only right. have three bands on their IgG Western right. blood. Or, right. Or, I, and there are, yeah. there are reasons, as you know, there are reasons why people might not has not develop the full antibody response. Mm-hmm. So someone who might have been treated early in their infection with antibodies for something else or for might just not generate a full antibody response. Mm-hmm. Before we get to treatment, because that, that's going to be also fascinating too, I just wanted a quick question on there was at one point too something mentioning about a low CD fifty seven. You know, it's what's one of the cluster determination markers. You know, for our listeners that are on T cells, that was at one point. Sometimes it was floated around that when it's low, indicated active disease. Is, is, was that debunked, or is that still something that you folks look at? I mean, I took a we took a look at the CD fifty seven when we were doing a study about. 15 years ago, and there was no difference in the rates and the levels of the CD57 for the Lyme patients versus the healthy controls. So I didn't find any difference or relevance associated with the CD57. Okay. We used the same lab that the people who find it to be useful used. So I think it fluctuates quite a bit, even in the course of a day within the same in- individual. Wow. So, hmm. Okay. All right, now we're going to get to probably, I'm sure, what so many of the listeners want to know about. And they, sorry, I'm going to have to put you on the spot here. This is why we call it the smartest doctor in the room. Um, we're going to talk about treatment. And I want to just run through a couple of these scenarios. What would be your approach? A patient, again, I know you're basically probably a referral center, but if a patient goes to their local urgent care center or uh, primary doctor, and they were out in the Hamptons over the weekend, you know, in the summer or the fall, and pretty sure they got bit by a tick or they, they noticed the rash. How would you recommend the treatment, you know, again, duration and your choice of antibiotic in general? Okay. I mean, the IDSA has a very thorough guide on the treatment of Lyme disease mm-hmm. and certainly extensively researched and supported. So for its simple cases, it's pretty straightforward. So someone who presents with an erythema migrans rash from having been in a Lyme endemic area just a couple of months earlier and they're feeling symptomatic, it certainly makes sense to treat them with the standard initial course of antibiotics, which would be doxycycline for 10 to 14 days, something like that. Okay. So you don't think it has, okay, that's what I'm asking. You don't think it has to be longer. You know, it's like, I don't remember again with syphilis, if it was a 
30 days. I mean, and I know when I did training, it was 10 days. So you think that that should be adequate. You know, again, just getting into the microbiology, doxycycline is not really a cytal antibiotic. I believe it's a static one. So, but 10 days is what they, you know, the infectious well, disease Well, that's designs. what they recommend. Yeah, and it's, okay. And it seems to, generally the results are quite good with okay. that. Mm-hmm. How, how important do you think it is also to, about tick identification? Now, I used to think patients were a little crazy when they, they'd come in with their little bag with their tick. And then I'm reading, I think it was even in your book saying, this is a good idea. You know, let's see what's, you know, in fact, I even had a tick in my backyard and my area is not really known for Lyme, thank God. And I sent it off to local quest and thank God it came back, you know, no, um, you know, no bacterium, no Borrelia in there. So do you consider that to be pretty helpful too? If somebody has gotten bit by a tick or, you know, I I might hear stories where patients like, oh my God, I pulled the tick off my body. Should they save that and have that analyzed? You know, it can be helpful. Yeah. But the point is you're going to treat because someone has symptoms. You're going to treat as a physician because you think this person has a complex uh, that's our symptom profile that's consistent with Lyme disease. I think the main reason someone sends their ticks out to be tested is because they're not, they're not getting tick bites very often. Okay. People who live in Lyme endemic areas are getting tick bites frequently. That's true. So they're, they're not, they just can't no, send I understand. All, that's true. all the yeah. ticks out to be tested. Right, right. I, I was just thinking more in the acute cases. Okay. And I just want to go back to the treatment sure. question earlier, which which was... You know, for acute Lyme disease, the two weeks, 10 days to two weeks of doxycycline is, is very, very reasonable. Okay. The question is, what do you do with patients? And the case you presented was actually someone who was who had been uh, infected maybe three months earlier. So it's already had a chance to right. disperse in the body's body. Who knows where it is lodging? Who knows whether you need to have an antibiotic for a longer period of time or one that crosses the blood-brain barrier? Or, or what? So it really depends on what the symptom presentation is at the time. Certainly, it's reasonable to start with the regular course, but you want to be highly vigilant to the possibility that that not, may not be adequate and a person may need a, an additional course of antibiotics. Okay, so let's talk about this. Again, I like to get into very specifics because for my own thinking and I'm sure for my listeners. So again, like the case that you're talking about, uh, a patient let's just say they went to their local urgent care center, they got the tick bite, maybe they had the rash, they were treated for 10 days with uh, doxycycline, but two, three months later, they're presenting to their doctor, they're now having joint pain or something else too. Is that a case where it really makes sense to go to an IV, like ceftriaxone, you know, an IV uh, antibiotic versus an oral, which might not get as high levels? I mean, how are doctors really making those determinations? And again, at the center... Yeah, I mean, I think the IV antibiotics people try to avoid at this point if they can, just because there are risks associated with the IV antibiotics. Mainly, if you have a, if you're using a pick line, for example, there's the risk of uh, infection, uh, there's a risk of blood clots. Okay. So if you can treat orally, it's much better than if you can treat IV. But sometimes you do need to treat with IV antibiotics. So, for example, the standard teaching on Lyme arthritis is you treat with doxycycline to begin with for a month. And then if that's not sufficient or adequate or the person relapses, you might treat with another month of doxycycline. And if that doesn't work, you might then go to the intravenous antibiotic, ceftriaxone, because it has good penetration. Right. Why wouldn't you, why would you continue to repeat though the doxycycline if it, there was failure? Was there, is there potential resistance? I mean, is there another choice? I, I know, again, it's classic yeah, doxycycline. Good question. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know that's that's the recommendation. Okay, all right. I'm just I, I thought I I have to ask you the questions that are on my yeah, mind, you know, well, and I'm sure you know because again I see so many of these you know I see a lot of these cases and well, you're always I mean, like, the other, yeah, the other possible explanation is that we know that 
when you give antibiotics against Borrelia or against many other microbes as well, oftentimes 90% of the microbes are killed, but there's 10% perhaps left over. And that 10% is not because it's not because of resistance, it's because of persistence or tolerance, tolerance of the antibiotic. So let's say those tolerant organisms were in a quiet, quiescent state or a dormant state, uh, and then they come out of that dormant state and start multiplying uh, and, and causing uh, inflammation or disease. Um, that would be an example of why the same antibiotic at a later point might be helpful. So there's this notion of pulse treating, where you treat and then maybe a month later you might treat again or two weeks later, whatever the pulse distance is, and that that might be effective. So it actually has been shown by several groups, very prominent groups around the country, uh, that doxycycline does not always lead to eradication of the organism. This uh, Sometimes you do get these persisters. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, because again, my background in immunology, I, I always find it fascinating. And again, it's going to be the big question with, with COVID. Is these chronic cases, these persistent cases, is it persistent inflammation possibly from you know, what we would call an antigen or some kind of protein from even dead organisms, or is it really true persistent infection? Well, that's that's really, really important question because if it's persistent infection, you want to treat right. with antibiotics. If it's not persistent infection, then you're wasting your time treating with antibiotics. Well, that's why I've used, believe it or not, I've used gamma globulin with patients sometimes. Oh, you have? That's great. Yeah, so, yeah because I, I, I'm a big believer in gamma globulin. I actually use intramuscular instead because I don't, they don't need replace, you know, again, in my training, you know, when I used to treat the kids with immune deficiencies, obviously we gave IV gamma globulin because they were deficient in, in immunoglobulins, but these patients aren't deficient, but the gamma globulin versus steroids reduces inflammation, but keeps their immune system strong. So we've had some, you know, some, you know, responses with that, but yeah, I was just curious, you know. Yeah, I've seen some actually excellent responses really? with mm. uh, gamma globulin treatment. Mm. Um, usually it's with patients who have persistent symptoms that are no, no longer responding to the antibiotics. Some of them have suggestion of, let's say, autoimmune neuropathy, mm -hmm. in which case that would be an indication perhaps mm -hmm. for the IV gamma globulin. Mm -hmm. uh, we know, I actually have seen some pretty dramatic responses. So I, I actually wrote a grant about three or four years ago to study gamma globulin treatment. Oh, really? It's funded because it's very expensive to yes, do that kind yeah, of study. Yeah. But I'm, it's very interesting to hear that you're using that. I have, as we get to toward the, the last questions, I, this is a really key one, and this is really right up your alley, you know, and I think the patients will, the listeners will appreciate that. The neurological, psychological symptoms of Lyme disease, I mean, when, when patients express brain fog, which up until before COVID, brain fog was like, you know, that people, patients used to get thrown out of doctor's offices by using that, you know, depression, anxiety, memory problems. What have you seen or learned you know, with these type of symptoms with patients, you know, with, with Lyme disease, is there any specific treatment or modality that you recommend? I mean, again, Ross Dutat, it's very interesting. I mean, he was petrified. He wasn't going to be able to write his column for the New York Times. I mean, at least, you know, like he was saying, he wasn't a, you know, a physical worker, but he was, there was a point he took off in the summer. He was supposed to write, I think, another book or something. And that's when he ended up writing this book, but he couldn't concentrate. So yeah. I was just curious if you... Uh, Anything the direct? neuropsychological aspects of uh, Lyme disease, both at the acute time as well as later, can be quite significant. So, for example, you might find yourself getting lost in a familiar place. Uh, you might find that you can't remember what you were doing the evening before or, or whether you ate breakfast that morning. Right. So short-term memory issues are a problem. 
word finding problems exist as well. So people can't know what they want to say, but they can't pull it out of their head. And then there's that brain fog or slow processing speed. It's like you're you're in a cloud and you just can't speak quickly enough or, or pull things together. So it's highly disturbing. We did a study of uh, Lyme encephalopathy, which we published in uh, 2008. And that study, we were trying to... Sh- test whether intravenous ceftriaxone when it's given for 10 weeks is better than placebo among patients, all of whom had previously received IV ceftriaxone. Mm-hmm. And what we found was that at the 12-week point, which is two weeks after finishing their treatment, there was a benefit, a marginal benefit, but uh, they lost their gains over the course of the next uh, three months. Now, we did do a long-term follow-up, and a number of those patients actually did sustain the improvements and, and do better, and we're grateful for having participated in the study. But right now, I'd have to say that there's a legitimate debate about whether repeated antibiotic therapy is helpful. From my review of the literature and from my own research and and from the work done at Stony Brook by Dr. Lauren Krupp, I think it's very clear that repeated antibiotics can be helpful. But it's also clear that a lot of people are not getting better from repeated or prolonged antibiotics and need other approaches. So I think the immune modulatory approaches really need to explore and studied further. We also need to pay very close attention to what's going on in the brain and how the neurotransmitters have been affected by infection, by inflammation. And inflammation can have long-term effects, uh, neural circuitry. And so it's not surprising that patients may have cognitive issues or sleep issues or depression issues or anxiety. And I If there are any patients listening to this podcast, they should definitely take advantage of the mental health professionals and go see them because they can definitely help with many of those symptoms. It disturbs me and worries me when I meet patients who say, oh, it's not in my head, doc. I don't want to take those mental medications because... It's, it's, that's not the problem. The problem is the Lyme disease. And I say, yes, the problem is the Lyme disease. It's caused changes in the way your brain is functioning. And right now it may no longer be active infection, but we need to do something to address that. So here at Columbia right now, we're in addition to the research center that we have, we recently started the Cohen Center for Health and Recovery from tick-borne diseases, from Lyme and tick-borne diseases. So that's a clinical treatment center. We also have started a clinical trials network, a national clinical trials network, to try to do more pilot studies to see which treatments actually have some promise and are safe, and then bring them to larger clinical trials. It's a ton of work, as you know, to, to, to do this. So we're actually going to be starting a study looking at transcutaneous vagal nerve stimulation. So a little device that you Oh, attend- yes. You know, I, I interviewed, you probably know Dr. Kevin Tracy. Have oh, you been sure. With him? I, I interviewed him a couple of years ago because I was always fascinated by his oh, work. I was told, I, always, I said he, Dr. Tracy should win the Nobel Prize. I mean, he what he discovered, this whole idea, you know, how the vagus nerve affects- the Inflammatory reflex. The inflammatory yeah. response was fascinating. Yeah. So it's interesting that yeah. you say that because, I mean, and he also was interesting. You know, one of his, when I read his article in Scientific American many years ago, it was dramatic how there were these patients that all, and they were failing all of these biologic therapies for, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and he, they implanted that vagal stimulator right. and they had some dramatic responses so yeah, they showed a reduced need of pain medication right the whole tumor necrosis reduced, factor changes you know right yeah. cytokines so now they have external devices right well that's good you know they've to, developed uh, that over the last 10 years that's so awesome i'm excited to to look at this to see if it might actually help our patients all right well, well let me see i have to throw out there you know because doctor uh, doctor ross dutop mentions this in the book and i don't know so you know we have to be careful because some patients are going to 
latch onto something called the Rife machine. I don't know what that is, but it's like some kind of, it sounds like some kind of device that the patients hook up to a certain frequency. And, you know, he said, look, he felt very weird, you know, trying it, but he was desperate. And I don't know. I remember, I remember in the book, he says that when the box came to my house, yeah. <laughs> uh, I saw my wife's face drop because she didn't, <laughs> all, all hope is lost. She didn't want me to be using this thing. Yeah. Um, all I can say is that it hasn't been studied very okay. well, so we really don't know much about it. And right. I don't know anything about okay. it. Dr. Fallon, I am so pleased that you were able to make the time to come on the podcast today. As I said, I learned so much. That's why I do this podcast. As I said, being the smartest doctor in the room is to get all these kind of doctors like yourself in here, give patients hope, you know, and I, that's what I try to do in my practice all the time because I tell them you just never know when the next breakthrough is going to happen around the corner. So That's absolutely right. It's so you. important. Science is advancing so rapidly. You have yeah. to be encouraged. How would you like if any patients are interested at, at about finding out about the um, the center and, you know, what's the best place for them to search out, if, you know, to get involved with trials? So they can just go to our website, which is columbia-lyme.org. Mm-hmm. And then they can learn a lot about what we're doing and about our clinical program as, as well as about our research studies. Excellent. Again, thank you so much for your time. This was My terrific. Pleasure. Great fun. All right. Okay. I hope we uh, get to talk again in the future. I look forward to that. All right. Okay. Take care. Have Bye-bye. a nice weekend. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.